Turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, that is where we find ourselves this morning. I'll remind you that John is an aged man at this point. Certainly, probably in his 80s, he's the last of the apostles who is around. And he is writing his last bit of wisdom to give to the people, probably the church in Ephesus, but also to the church at large, saying, here's what I want to leave you as I get ready to go to glory. Now, think about this. John has written the Gospel of John. He has written the Revelation of John. He's been carried to the, to the heavens, and he's seen these visions uh, before himself. And so now he's giving his last bit of wisdom to the church, saying, here's what I want you to know. And so he, um, he comes, and he gives us um, 1 John. So we are in 1 John chapter 2. We'll be reading verses uh, 7 through 14. So if you would, would you please stand, if you're able, to read the Word of God. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. May God, in His blessing of the reading of His Word, you may be seated. So, um, as we come, there is, uh, in, in the writing of 1 John, John is coming and he, he recognizes that there has been an infiltration that has occurred within the church. And what has happened is false teachers have come into the church. We would call these people Gnostics, who believe that they come into the church and they have this special knowledge, this special wisdom. And what they're doing is they're beginning to corrupt the church, and they're twisting and bending and distorting the church and the doctrine of the church in such a way as that the gospel message is being lost. And John, as the only remaining apostle, is writing this, and he's writing in such a way as he's saying, I know that you are thinking these things, but you're wrong. If you hate your brother, you're living in darkness. If you do not believe, if you... As a matter of fact, he says these things in this way. He says, if we say, um, and we see this in, in chapter 1, um, in, in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, in verse 10, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so John is saying that there is a propensity, an inclination of the human heart to deceive oneself because of our sinful tendencies. Like, I don't know about you, but I am really good about rationalizing my sin to other people. If I transgress God's law, I have a reason why I have transgressed his law. And I can justify myself and my actions and my thoughts and my words all the time because I want to be really, you know, kind to myself and, and hard on others. 
I mean, how about this? How easy is it for us to point out the sin in others or the, the flaws in others? And yet oftentimes it's very difficult for us to see the flaws in our own thinking and in our own actions. As a matter of fact, when other people point out our flaws, we oftentimes push them away. And what John is writing is, and John is saying, okay, in the midst of the church, in the midst of self-deception, we need to evaluate ourselves and what we believe about the gospel. And he gives us three tests, and we've been through two of them. So I'm not trying to, to heap on us, but, but I know that we're at the end of the semester for many college students, and, and, and the testing is just overwhelming. Think about the worst test you've ever had to sit on. Like you knew you were going in, you're like, not much hope of me passing this class. I don't know if you've ever had that. Um, I've had that happen a couple times. I remember second semester of organic chemistry thinking, I should just be a firefighter. That was my thought. Like my dad was a firefighter in Virginia Beach. I'm thinking, I, do I really need this? Like do I need to get through this organic chemistry final? I mean, like there's a lot of options. Like, I mean, I don't know. Like I could sell vinyl siding. I could, you know, greet people at Walmart. I could, you know, dig ditches. I could do all kinds of things, right? You know, I mean, I could probably even join the Navy. You know, I mean, I mean, all of those things, you know. Uh, yeah, I know it was a low blow, but that's okay. You know, uh, yeah. You know, as, as I think about those things, I'm like, wh- why? I mean, I could do anything but this. But, but John gives us three tests. The first test is theological in the book of 1 John. He says this, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he's the son of God and the savior of sinners? And do you trust and believe in him alone for your salvation? If you do, then you've passed the theology test. That Jesus is both God and man, and that he is the propitiation for our sins. That what happened on the cross of Christ is the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus, and God's wrath was placated, satisfied, and extinguished upon Jesus for all of our sins that are credited to him. That's the theological test. If you pass that, he says, let's go to the moral test. If you're following Jesus, if you say you love Jesus, you will obey his commands. And you will not only obey his commands, but you will do and obey his commands cheerfully, knowing that Jesus died for you and that his commands are not onerous, but rather they are meant so that you will flourish and so that you will have joy within your soul. So, That's the the moral test. And when he comes up third, and this is where we are in in verse 7 of chapter 2, is he says there is a social test that occurs. Because we are not meant to do Christianity in isolation from one another. But rather, we are meant to be in community, in the family of God, with the people of God, hand in hand, linked arms with one another as we... You know, storm the gates of hell as we plant churches, as we send out missionaries, as we become missionaries in our neighborhoods with the message of Jesus. And he says, the social test is this. Do you love your brother? Notice what he says. He says, beloved. And again, this is John saying, I love you guys. This is, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. That's why when I I talked about Leviticus 19 in in the Old Testament reading. It says not only are you supposed to love your brother, but you're supposed to love the sojourner. Those who are in your midst, you're supposed to love them as you love yourself. Now, since the beginning of man, we have struggled with loving our brother. Okay? As a matter of fact, sometimes um, I've done different business transactions with people. 
Uh, and, and sometimes those business transactions will require a contract, right? And there are times when I will be with um, somebody who is another brother or sister in Christ, and they will say, we don't need a contract. We're brothers in Christ. And I look at them and I go, have you read your Bible? Do you know what brothers do to other brothers in the Scriptures? They kill each other. Like Cain and Abel. And if they don't kill each other, they sell them into slavery. And I have not yet even gotten out of the book of Genesis describing what brothers do to one another. Brothers are not kind to one another. If, how many of you guys have brothers? You ever had some good fights with your brother? I mean, like good fights with your brother? Like Brothers are not naturally inclined to love one another. It takes work. It takes the spirit. It takes the rod of discipline from the hand of a wise mother and father. But... Brothers are called to love each other. And this is the the difficulty. This is the difficulty in the church that John is addressing. He's saying, this is not an an old commandment, but rather it is an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. And the old commandment is is the word that you have heard, meaning you are called to love your brother. You are called to love those that you're in community with. You are called not to take advantage of them, but you are called to help them. You are called to not abuse your brother or brothers. And and I don't think he's talking about, I'm certain he's not talking about just the blood relation, but he's talking about those people who are in faith together, those people who are in community with one another, that we are called to be people who are people of justice and and goodness and truth. But he, he goes on to say, at the same time, it is a new commandment. Well, well, sometimes, um, he uses this word new, this Greek word new that he's using does not mean new in, in, the, in the measure of time, but he means new in the measure of quality, okay? Not in the measure of time, like you haven't heard it, but rather in the measure of quality. And what John is speaking about, and this is probably what he's alluding to, he's alluding to um, the idea of um, this idea of love in terms of quality, love in terms of quality, of Jesus' love for others. That's the model, that's the paradigm that we have in front of us, is Jesus. We all know that we should love our friends. Let me quote um, from a commentator. We all know we should love our friends, but Jesus taught us we should actually love our enemies in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And then, after the Sermon on the Mount, then he showed us how to do it. Jesus loved his enemies even when they were putting him to death. He prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He probably prayed this prayer not once, but several times. He prayed for the Jewish leaders who clamored for his death. Father, forgive them. He prayed for the Roman soldiers who drove the spikes into his hands and feet. Father, forgive them. He prayed for the Roman soldiers who gambled for his clothes at the foot of the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. Can we pray that today? If you walk up to a man on the street corner and tell him about Jesus and he spits on you, could you pray this prayer, Father, forgive him? Jesus loved his enemies. He loved his brothers and he loved his enemies. When it comes to the model of love, I mean, Jesus is the paradigm. Now, this word for love, like we have in Scripture, we have three different words for love. Um, The first is there's this word eros, which is more of a a physical love. We get the word erotic from it. 
Um, the, the second word is philos. Uh, it's a brotherly love. This, that's why we think about Philadelphia, which is an oxymoron, as they call themselves the city of brotherly love, and yet they throw batteries at other teammates, you know, as they, or other opponents as they're in, in you know, Eagles games and Phillies games. And you know, I don't know where the brotherly love is. I don't know what Ben Franklin was talking about. But the word here in this Greek is um, agape. And, and when he talks about the love that we have from the Father, but also the love that we are called to have for our brothers, is this word agape. And it is a love, and it is defined in this way. It is unselfish in nature. It is a love that gives and expects nothing in return. It is a love that says, I love you in spite of yourself. I love you anyway, regardless of the circumstances. It is a love that puts the needs of the other person before your own. That is the kind of love God has for us and that we are to have for one another and for the world. That's a high, high calling. It is a a difficult, difficult thing for us to, to evaluate that in our own lives. This unselfish love that expects nothing in return, and this is where um, this is where I fail, right? Because oftentimes I love with the idea that I will be receiving back from the person something in return, and when I don't receive back from them, I become bitter or embittered towards that person. And yet the call, the call that Jesus has upon our lives is to love um, in a way that is selfless. And the hard part is that I'm just so, so stinking selfish all the time. Like I, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and I don't want anybody to get in the way of the way that I want my life to go. And yet Jesus says, I want you to have a love for others that is beyond yourself. It's so hard. And he says, you know, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So think about that. Think about the people around you. I mean, you can't live in the midst of community with one another and not be wronged by another person, right? I mean, within the family within the church, within you know, the world, if you interact with other people, you will have conflict with other people. And you will become frustrated with them. They will become frustrated with you. And, and there's a propensity, and I think there's whispers of Satan that says, you know, that person doesn't deserve our love. That person hasn't earned that love. That person is not deserving of that love. And yet, what we find within the Scriptures is, you know what? We don't deserve the love of God. But in Romans chapter 5, it says, But God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He sent Jesus to die for us. You see, we we oftentimes withhold love and a self-sacrificial love, which, which, I mean, it means forgiveness, it means care, it means service. I mean, those kind of things. Um, I mean, 1 Corinthians you know, 13, you know, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I mean, it's, it's the definition of love. I mean, you, you hear this all the time in, in, in weddings, you know. Um, 
but really it's, it's meant to be in the, in the context of, of problems and, and issues and fractions within the, the church. Um, I mean, he says this, you know, the Apostle Paul says, this is what love is defined. He says, love is patient and kind. I mean, again, he's speaking about this, this agape love. Love is patient and kind. I, mean, I can just stop there, right? <laughs> I'm just stop there and go, yep, I totally blew it. I, I am not patient, and, and I want to get everything. I, I don't want anything to impede my progress of where I'm going at any point, and I am not patient at all. But kindness, am I kind? Is the love that I have kind? Or do I use the truth, which is another form of love, to batter people with the truth, right? You know, like my, my prayer for myself is that I would be more like Jesus and that I would be, have the correct measure of grace and truth working itself out as I, as I love people. But I have known people that will say, no, I'm loving, but it's a harsh love. It's a love that just batters people over and over again with the truth. And there's no tenderness, there's no gentleness, there's no care for the souls. So is our love kind? It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. And this this one gets me. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, as we think about that social test, you know, in terms of ourself, like how do we love one another? I was reading one commentator and he was funny. He said this, he goes, I sort of have this feeling that the Lord God, uh, when I get to heaven, is going to put the most irritable person in my church next to me for a thousand years. So think about who that might be. And say, you're going to work on loving this person for the next thousand years. Maybe 10,000, depending on your level. And then after that, I'm going to put the second most irritable person in your life so that you'll have to endure living with them. Now, I don't think that's the case because in in heaven there is no sin. But I just thought that was funny. To imagine to be shackled with the most irritable person that you could find for a thousand years. You know, working on that within our lives. You know, how do we love one another? It it says, whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What John is saying is that within the church, there should be such a love that we have for one another, such a care, such a a self-sacrificial nature that when people come in, they go, wow, this is a community of faith and the family of God loves one another in such a way that we literally sacrifice ourselves for the sake of another. And when that happens, that is so attractive to the world. Because the world says, I've never seen that before. Because I don't know about you guys, but when you're out in the world, the world is very selfish, not selfless. And when somebody encounters somebody, I mean, what happens when you encounter somebody who loves you and is not trying to get something from you? 
you immediately go, what's their angle? Cynicism runs deep within our culture. That we immediately go, where's the timeshare salesman in this? I know I'm not just going to get $100. I know that there's got to be an angle. He must be working something. And yet the person of Jesus says, I give and I do not take from. I mean, the, the, the person of Jesus in the midst of the gospel says, I live a life of self-sacrifice so that you might live. Now, he ends this particular section, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 through 11, and he says, that's the social test. The social test is, do you love your brother? Are there brothers that you are struggling to love? If you are, repent and believe and trust and go love. And you might say, well, how do I do that? And you do it the same way that Jesus did. You know, you, you trust in Jesus, you rely upon the Holy Spirit, and you move towards each other. But then John, in, in, this, in this beautiful, you know, poetic passage from verses 12 through 14, what he wants to do is he wants to just pour forth grace and comfort upon your souls. And he says this, and so he, he, he differentiates, uh, and this is a couplet as we see this. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins um, are forgiven for his namesake. If you go down to the end of verse 13, he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. So commentators have struggled with these passages because it seems as if he differentiates between little children, young men, and old fathers. And so what is John trying to get to us right now? I I think this is what he's saying. Um, At the very least, I know that he's giving us five things to hang our hats on. Five things of, that should encourage us in our Christian walk with Jesus. But he, but he begins with little children. So let me, let me just t- start with um, verse 12, and then we'll get to young men, and then we'll get to um, fathers in the faith. Um, so how are we encouraged? First of all, it's this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. He says that, that our sins are forgiven. Now, a sin is any... Um, um, any, any, um, anything that breaks God's law, anything that violates God's law. And he says, but your sins are forgiven. So he's saying the smallest, the weakest, knows that their sins are forgiven. And that forgiveness of sins is, is pivotal and it is essential and it is radical in the life of a new believer. To know that everything that you've done past, present, and future, but especially the past, as you think about your life and you go, man, I was not kind, I was not caring, I did not walk the way I was walked, I hurt the people that I'm called to love, and yet all my sins are forgiven. Spurgeon says um, this regarding that passage. He says, a newly converted man does not know much about sanctification or union to Christ. Perhaps he does not know much about election or calling or sealing, but the principal point he dwells upon is pardon. It is written in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And the man who has newly found peace with God by Jesus Christ repeats that article of the Creed with solemn emphasis, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. He says, for he has just realized it, and to him it is a gift so great that like the moon and the stars it shines as a queen among the blessings of grace. Pardon of sin seems to the little children to comprehend the whole work of Jesus. 
and the whole work of the Holy Spirit too. Vast favors lie beyond, but to him who has newly crossed the Jordan, this one valley of Eshol fills all the range of vision, and the soul hardly dreams of any further benediction. The newly pardoned does not yet see the innumerable innumerable other blessings which come in the train of forgiveness. He is for the present absorbed in the hearing of that one sentence, Go in peace, your sins, which are many, are all forgiven. Well, beloved child, many more blessings await you. Pardon is but an entrance blessing, a welcome at the doorstep. There are rarer joys within the house. You have become an heir to a boundless inheritance, and all things are yours. Heaven and Christ and God are are yours. Yet I marvel not that at present all your heart, as a new believer, is taken up with a sense of forgiveness in Christ. That you are forgiven. I'm going to... One of my favorite stories is found in Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. But Luke chapter 7, I I, I so love this story. And I've referred to it many times. But it's a sinful woman is forgiven in Luke chapter 7. So Jesus, you know, is is invited to a party with the Pharisees. You know, so, so Jesus gets to go to a party with the cool kids, right? So one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Really, what that means is she was most likely a prostitute within the city. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, meaning a very expensive perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, because Jesus would be reclining at this point, Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you. And imagine, imagine being the woman who's, you know, she's like, wow. And Jesus says this, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want you to think about that. A woman of ill repute, she comes in and in the midst of repentance, she wets Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and she kisses his feet and all she wants is the love of the Father. And Jesus says to her her in verse 48, Your sins are forgiven. 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. At this point, imagine the euphoria and the peace within her soul to know that she's forgiven. Everything behind her is behind her. And when the accuser reminds her, can you imagine when, the, when Satan says, you know what, you really can't be forgiven for all that in the past. She can say, no, no, from the words and the lips of Jesus, I have heard your sins are forgiven. Walk in peace. I mean, you want to talk about a theology to hang your hat on? Little children, to know that your sins are forgiven is to know that you can have peace within your soul. He also says this in verse 13 regarding children, at least, because you know the Father. Yeah, many of us, um, many of us have, have dads who are, who are wonderful dads, who have loved us and cared for us. And there are many of us who also have deep, deep father wounds within us. Fathers who have let us down, fathers who have not been generous, fathers who have not raised us up, maybe some of us who have had fathers who have abandoned us or abandoned our, our mothers. And yet, in Christ, God the Father becomes our Father. and He is good and He is just. And He will not give you that which you deserve, but rather He gives you mercy and grace. There's something about um, knowing your father. There's something about, um, you know, when, when you're a child and your dad comes home from work, you get excited. And the only person who gets more excited is your mom. Because you're, the mother's hoping that, that that father will take that child out of the house for a moment. Right? Please, take that child away. And so the child, you know, will run to the father and be swept up in the arms. And that's, that's to know the Father. I mean, and as a father, I mean, there's, there's, that's one of the greatest joys that we have, is to see our children run to us. And eventually they get older, and the only person who greets us is our dog. That's why we like dogs. Right? Because, you know, at least the dog greets us when they come in the house. Right? You know. But to know the Father, and to know that you are forgiven, and that the Father loves you, brings peace to your soul. So John encourages us. He says, little children, your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. And he moves on. He says, young men. Now, young men, you know, young men in Scripture, are, they are not necessarily lifted up as paragons of virtue and of restraint. Right? I mean, young men are young, dumb, and they are full of something, right? They are full of it. And yet, what he says you know, here he says this, young men who are in Christ, young men, you will struggle because you will be headstrong. You will be headstrong in the midst of your faith, but you are young. And he says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, in verse 14, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. There's, there's two, um, there's twice he says the evil one. And what he's saying is that the that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion ready to devour you. And what he says is that within Christ, in Christ, you will actually declaw the lion 
and take the fangs out of the serpent. And he says, but if you will abide in my word, if you are abiding in God and and the word of God abides in you, then you can overcome all of the issues of youthful desire and lust. And I will say that young men have a propensity towards folly. We know that. I I mean, just whether you're you know, a young man, you're, you're 12, or you're a young man in your 20s, you know, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline drives it far from them. But the discipline of the Father is a good discipline, because it's saying, I want you to abide within the Word so that you can overcome. Let, let me give you some example. I have met young men, um, matter of fact, I was, um, I, was, I was walking the Windsor Castle Trail uh, with my good friend David Dixon yesterday, and uh, and he, and he quoted, and he said, you know, I was talking to my students, he teaches down a Stonebridge Bible, and he says, I quoted you the other day. And, um, and I said, you quoted me? What did you quote me for? He said, remember when you, you would say that when you were doing youth ministry, and you would have youth that would go off to college, and those youth would come back, and they would say something like this, I'm really struggling with my faith. I'm really struggling. So, so I'd have a student come back. You know, and I'd have a student say, you know, I'm really wrestling with my faith. And the question that I would ask him is this, when did you start sleeping with your girlfriend? And they would go like, whoa, I'm talking about my faith. I'm like, yeah, I know you're talking about your faith, but when did you start sleeping with your girlfriend? And they would go, a little while ago. How did you know? And I said, because oftentimes in the midst of the sinful patterns of your life, you begin to doubt your faith because you doubt your your belief in what you're doing and where you're going. How about this? Guys who are struggling with you know, addictions to pornography or other addictions, they doubt their faith. They doubt their goodness. They doubt whether or not God loves them and will carry them through. I mean, we are at a place right now in our culture where the assumption is that most guys are struggling with pornography or have struggled with it in the past. You know, as, as an Air Force chaplain, when guys come in, I see guys' marriages being wrecked by what they're watching on the internet. Just destroyed by what's happening. And they come in and they're worried about their faith and what they believe. And I'm like, yes, I understand. Because you are doing things that do not build your faith, but rather you are doing things that erodes your faith and trust. And Satan, the whole time, is trying to get us to believe in lies. You know, and if, and if guys struggle with lust, then i got to tell you, I'm, I'm not going to keep women from hearing this, but, but you know, Right now, social media and things like Instagram and, and Facebook, they're destroying our, our, our young people today. Because the, 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 the young women in our lives, and, and when, he, when he says young men, he's talking about young believers. This is men and women. He's talking about you know, struggling with the ideas of perfectionism and comparison. Those will eat your soul. They will eat your soul up. If you allow yourself to give into thinking that you know, the, the Instagram photos and the, and, the, and the filters that we're seeing in Facebook and the pictures that we see are actually the real life of what's going on. Because you guys know that when you put a good picture on Facebook, you've just deleted 14 other pictures and you took the very best picture, you put a filter on it, and for one brief moment in time, you said, this is my life. And you know what? That this is my life is just a little bit of a lie that you're trying to portray to the world. And other people look at it and go, wow, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could have that. I wish these things were true of me. And those issues of comparison and perfectionism 
within the heart of, of young women today are literally devouring them. You want to know why we have a, a heightened place of anxiety disorder? Where we have you know, depression that is just off the charts right now? It's the issues of the idols of our heart. Whether it's lust and pornography or perfectionism or comparison, those things are devouring us. And what the Word of God says is, I write to you young men, young women, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. If we would spend as much time within the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, trusting in the Word of God, as we do on social media, then I think that the level of anxiety disorders, the level of depression would actually diminish. Now, I don't have any scientific studies that prove that, okay? I'm just telling you, I think that's true. That if we place within our hearts and in our minds the Word of God and the truth of God, there's something in the life of a believer that, that hope springs forth eternal rather than despair. And we'll know we're forgiven. And then he says this, and this is, I, I, I love this because he says this about fathers. In verse 13 and in verse 14, he says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And he, and he reiterates it in verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Now here's what I get from that. What I get for, as you age in your faith, as you become a father, you're no longer a child, you're no longer a young man or woman, but you're a father and mother in the faith. What you have with you is you have a history of faithfulness from the Father. And you can look back and go, man, I have lived a life and I've been in Christ for, you know, for me, I've, I've you know, I've, I've been in Christ probably now at least, you know, you know, 20, 28, 30, 30 years. And as I look back and go, God has been faithful. God has been faithful. So that when difficulties arise, when, when frustrations occur, we have a whole history to look back upon and go, yes, but God has been faithful. He will be faithful. And His promise to me is that He will continue to be faithful. When you're a new believer, you don't have a history to rest upon. But when you have been in Christ for some time, you go, yes, He has been. He will be forever. And there's a history that we can rely and rest upon and say, yes, I can abide in Christ. Jesus will never let me down. Everybody else will. Everybody else in the world will. But Jesus will not. And His promises endure forever. Brothers and sisters, when I think about that, my hope for you is that you will abide in Christ that you will know that your sins are forgiven, that you will immerse yourselves within the truth of God's Word so that you can overcome the evil one, and that through a long history of faith, that you will know Him as your Father who is from the beginning and who will always be your Father through the, throughout all time. And that you will delight to run to Him and be wrapped in His embrace. To know that you are forgiven and loved and valued. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray, Lord, that we would take the encouragement that You've given us and that it would, we would hide it within our hearts. 
Father, that we would love our brothers as you have called us to, as we have been loved. Father, help us. Help us to walk in faithfulness to you. Father, help us to obey. And Father, help us to not think that our obedience to you and to your commands is a condition for our salvation, but rather it is a characteristic of our salvation. And Father, obeying your commands and loving you, Father, we will have great joy and great peace. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give a peace that transcends our understanding and would guard our hearts and minds in Christ. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.